So Acts 21 verse 15 is where we're at today. Um, Paul has just finished up his third missionary journey. He was very purposeful uh, to get back to Jerusalem in time for the feast. Uh, some commentators compare uh, Paul and his laser beam focus on getting to Jerusalem for his purpose uh, to that of Jesus who set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem for his focus. And there are a number of interesting parallels that uh, Luke brings out of that as just the disciple follows in his master's footsteps. And as he goes to Jerusalem and he makes it there today in our text, um, my title of the sermon, I wrote it out quite a bit sarcastically uh, that is, what a warm welcome, you know, because it ends up not being so warm, you know, the, the and what he goes on, what goes on in Jerusalem um, is going to end up being really rough. And, uh, and then as I was teaching at first service and reading my notes again, I'm like, you know, it did start out pretty warm. Like there was a nice reception, but it was pretty short lived before um, kind of the stress from the culture comes out and then the stress of persecution will come out uh, big as well. So what a warm welcome. We'll see it in, in, uh, in the good and the sarcastic as well. But let's go ahead and look at verse 15 and uh, 15 through 17 here. After those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we'd come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And so uh, there is that warm welcome. It, it did have a warm welcome. They received us gladly when we got to Jerusalem. And one of the things that may have helped with that warmth was that Paul had brought with him a substantial amount of money to, to love on the people of Jerusalem and the area of Judea. Background chapter 11, Agabus the prophet had said that there would be a great famine that would happen in Judea. And so the apostles determined within themselves that they would try to raise some funds to bring relief into Jerusalem. So on the missionary journeys, they would go through, they would share the gospel, church plants would be happening, and they would say, hey, the people who've shared with us in all of the spiritual things about Christ are going to be going through some hard stuff. Now it's our time to share with them in the material things to help them get through this tough time in life. And so they would take an offering in the first day of the week. They would gather things together as people would prosper and they would collect that gathering on the way back through on the missionary journey. Now, to read some of the fun drama of that, you can read Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 where the Corinthian people who could, you know, they, they just struggled like all of us, you know, uh, but they had made a big declaration that they were going to be collecting a lot of money, but word was getting around that they hadn't even really started the fundraising process. And so Paul kind of writes to them like, hey, I'm over here in Macedonia and they're like getting it together. I'm going to be coming back through there soon and I don't want you to be embarrassed. So you might want to get the ball rolling in um, in the care for our friends in Jerusalem. And it's just, it's a really actual great passage in scripture of principles of Christian generosity and why we give. And ultimately it's because of the great giver. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and so they had received the offering. Now Luke doesn't write anything about that, that the offering had been received. We don't read of that in this passage. Um, and yet the, the contribution no doubt 
helped with the warmth of the welcome. Uh, John Stott says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the use of money can be a tangible token of love. The chief significance of the offering, however, lay in its symbolism. It demonstrated the solidarity of Gentile believers with their Jewish sisters and brothers in the body of Christ. You know, it's funny, I, I never use the word solidarity. I've known the word solidarity from what's gone, goes on in current events these days and solidarity, you know, and I was like, I feel like that word's getting used a bit too much in certain circles, you know, or whatnot. And then all in my reading this week, everyone's talking about solidarity, you know, and so uh, solidarity with, hey, we're with you, Jerusalem brothers. You shared with us in the spiritual things. We're sharing with you in the physical things. And then we're going to see in just a little bit, Paul is going to show solidarity with the Jews themselves by saying, I also value the customs and the traditions and the law of the Lord. I value those things, even though I also have been set free from the law uh, because I would never be able to fulfill it. Jesus has done it for me, and now I walk in freedom as well. Uh, But I'm going to do a vow that's going to show solidarity with you guys. And so we'll read of that uh, in just a little bit. Okay, so uh, they greeted us warmly or uh, they received us with gladly, verse 17 ends with. And then on 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. And so interesting to just note uh, again from chapter 16 that James was really one of the paramount leaders in the Jerusalem church. Peter, James, and John in Galatians were called pillars of the early church. Uh, and yet at this point by chapter 16 and now in 21, James and the elders are leading the church there in Jerusalem. Jay, the, uh, James is the mentioned one. And we don't really see Peter there, which just shows us, you know, just that Peter being the Pope uh, and Peter being the rock that the church was built on. It's not quite the apostolic succession that the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe. And yet at the same time, we don't need to balk at that. When Jesus told Peter that, hey, on the rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Peter was, no doubt, an incredible leader of the early church. But uh, some idolatry has happened towards Peter over the last couple thousand years. And he's been considered like the guy when um, when really there were there were a lot of guys that were laboring for the kingdom. And the succession of leaderships comes more from just the laying on of hands, elders to elders, all the way on down through the ages. And if you were here last week, we laid hands on three new elders and brought our number uh, up here in the elder uh, group here, the team that we have here at the church. So anyways, we got James leading the church in Jerusalem. He's there with elders. They're all present for this meeting. And uh, when they, when when Paul had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So just gives a recap of all that the last number of chapters from chapters 13 through 21, the missionary ventures and adventures, all the things that God had done. And so you can imagine maybe how long that took and the wonderful stories. And we have what we have, but I bet Paul, you know, he didn't have the slideshow like we always do when we come back from Nepal and we show you slides and videos but just incredible testimonies of God's faithfulness. And some of those things, I'm just going to read through a list of some incredible things that happened in those times is, is we had uh, <clears throat> Silas and Timothy getting saved and becoming key disciples 
of Paul's, uh, the Macedonian call in Acts 16 to go into Europe, into Macedonia, <clears throat> and begin that European ministry, beginning in Philippi, where Lydia, a seller of scarlet from Thyatira, and her whole household would get saved. A demon-possessed girl would be delivered, which would lead to Paul's imprisonment, where the jailer and his whole family would get saved. So really, the Philippian church began with um, a woman who was a seller of scarlet, a demon-possessed girl who'd just been delivered, and, you know, a chain-smoking jailer that, I'm just kidding, that's just the stereotype, you know, uh, a jailer that, um, and him and his whole family had just been delivered. And then he went on to Thessalonica, demonstrating and reasoning with people that Jesus had to suffer and die, and multitudes were persuaded, and not a few leading women, which is a very fancy way to say a lot of leading women uh, also became Christians there in Thessalonica. They went on to Berea where very fair-minded people received the scripture and then they would test everything that Paul would say with the Bible uh, to see if it was true, which is something we encourage you guys to do. Have those Bibles open, double-check things, make sure that the things you're being taught here are biblical and true and in line with the gospel. He went from there to Athens and to Greece where he gave a sermon there on Mars Hill to the philosophers of the day. Uh, they mostly rejected him, but some people did believe and some people did say that they wanted to hear him again on the matter. They went to Corinth, the sin city of its day, the, the Las Vegas of its day. And they met Aquila and Priscilla there who became co-workers of Paul in the ministry. Crispus and Sosthenes who at first was against them and got just beat up. Uh, but then ended up becoming a Christian later on. They went to Ephesus where they discipled Apollos and made many disciples and started a Bible college there. There were powerful miracles that happened. It says about Ephesus ministry that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There was a massive riot of some 50,000 people um, rioting against Christianity there. And uh, from there, Paul began to sail back. He stopped in Miletus. Uh, Eutychus, that young man fell out of the window, uh, was taken up dead, and then they prayed for him, and he was healed. And so all these things, you can just imagine. I just kind of went through a very quick little list of some things that happened. And Paul is no doubt more deeply explaining to them uh, just how faithful God was to save Gentiles. And so in verse 20, it tells us that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So that's awesome. They couldn't but praise the Lord for what he did on those mission trips. And I always love when we come back the Sunday we get back from Nepal, we always share of what God did on that mission trip. And it's such a rich and sweet time of rejoicing that God has moved through our church and answered prayers and is reaching the lost and the unreached of the, of the Himalayas. And, uh, and so they heard it. They were glad. They, uh, rejoiced in that. But it just seems a bit short-lived because immediately they kind of get into the drama that's going on in Jerusalem. And so that's kind of where I kind of say, what a warm welcome, because it's over, okay? Uh, and now it just gets into some of the tough stuff that's going on, some of the tension that's going on there, and then that's going to just snowball into persecution against Paul. And so when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and you would think that the very next quote would be something like, isn't it incredible 
how from the Old Testament all the way up through the prophets, you see that God's heart was for the nations to be saved. And man, how we Jews took it and made it selfish and all about us. And we hated the Gentiles. And we thought that our only purpose was to fuel the fires of hell. And I'd rather be a a dog than a Gentile, you know, but now we know that God's purpose was to save the Gentiles and, and man, how wonderful that he's using us in this. And we're just, you know, it was nothing. The very next quote is, uh, well, you see brethren, how many myriads of their, of Jews there are who've believed and they're all zealous for the law, but they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they are informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Thanks. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, so the missionary testimony time is over. And now it's like, look, your whole gospel of grace that you've been preaching, we believe it. But, uh, but you know, people have been hearing some things and you're kind of offending them and they're going to get together and start talking about you because they know you're in town. And so here's what we think you should do to make peace. Okay. And so just kind of that glad welcome was a bit short lived. Now to give James and the elders credit they are doing ministry in a place that was, you know, that center point for Judaism, where as people are getting saved um, from Judaism into Christianity, their value of the law of Moses and the customs and the traditions that aren't necessarily bad, they're, they're good. And some of those traditions, if bad focus, they could be bad. But all of those things, they're having difficulty just resting in grace, just resting in that it's not about my performance or what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. He performed excellently and I can just rest in what he's done. Uh, and so they're just struggling with how do we go from just a culture and of customs that are just law keepers. It's what we do. We have rules. We keep rules. We have ceremonies and rituals and things that we do. And, and now all these guys off in Europe and Asia are getting saved and they don't even care about this stuff. Like, well, that makes me want to care about it more, you know? And so there was just tension between the law and grace. Okay. And so Paul would be such a champion for grace when he writes the book of Romans, when he writes the book of Galatians and just to not go back to resting in your works for salvation or for how you might be with God. Don't rest in the labors, rest in Jesus and what he's done. And that will spur you on to be living all out for the Lord. Okay. And then you can be led by his grace into how to, to complete those laws or to be a part of the the system from before. And so you just got to basically, I know that this is a lot for some of you guys, but basically where Paul, Paul is walking into a bunch of pastors that their whole job is trying to help Jews figure out that tension and walk in that tension of just trying to get them to lean on grace more, trying to get them to lean on grace more. And as Paul is out in his ministry is to the Gentiles, 
There are Gentiles, there are even Jews who'd been dispersed and went up into Asia that nowadays they're like, man, I just don't, I'm so excited about what Jesus has done for me and he paid my debt and I could never fulfill the law and he fulfilled the law. I'm not even thinking about the law anymore. I'm not even worried about the law anymore. I'm just resting in grace and grace is making me want to love my neighbor and love my God and walk in holiness and walk in integrity. And I'm, I'm all these good things are spurred out of grace. And so people are starting to hear, did you hear that, you know, this family that was came out of Jerusalem, they don't even observe the Sabbath anymore, you know, or, or they, they're not even circumcising their kids, you know, and it's just like, oh, scandalous, right? And so I uh, just learn to walk in that balance. And it's interesting, if you ever listen to the Bible Project uh, video, they just went through a series on the law and had a Q&A after the Deuteronomy study they did. And the question was called in and, and they said, uh, so what laws, if any, are Christians supposed to observe and follow? And the answer was just a little too scholarly for me. The answer was, none of them and all of them. You're like, oh, isn't that just so helpful, right? All right, because we know that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he has fulfilled it so that if anybody believes on him, the father sees us through Jesus's obedience as if we had fulfilled the law. And we know from the New Testament that all the law, it, it points to our need for a savior that we could never do it. And so we can rest in that Jesus has done it. We also know that the law was given to a people in a certain place in a certain time with certain customs and ceremonies and in certain times of warfare and certain things that they would go through that we will never experience, can never experience. And so there are certain things that are ceremonial and there's certain things that are moral. And we see those things either not repeated throughout the Bible to where we don't really need to worry about, you know, maybe the garment fabric or, you know, what fabrics to mix or things like that. On the other hand, there are things that are repeated and we see in the New Testament that are moral laws. And it does seem that there is a great value in the New Testament, if not commands to be observing things like the 10 commandments, right? That great moral law, and maybe not observing a Saturday Sabbath, but having at least a value for the Lord's day on the Sunday as the new Testament did. So all that to be saying is there's always been the great tension between working and grace, working and grace. And yet we know as new Testament Christians that when we rest in grace, we know that now we want to work for the Lord, but for a different reason, not to appease him, but to please him. We just want to love, love him back. All right. So, uh, all that to say, Paul, there's some, you know, people have been here and that you're kind of telling people they don't really need to observe the law anymore. And this isn't true. Okay. If anything, it's a, maybe a partial truth or a half truth in the sense that, no, I'm just teaching people that, you know, for righteousness, they don't need to do that. They can rest in the Lord Jesus. And, and so there's that, well, here's an idea. Just hear us out got some guys and they're going to take a vow and go onto the temple tomorrow. They're going to shave their heads. We would suggest that you join them and you know, maybe you could just pay their cover charge. You know, since you brought all this money with you, we know that you're loaded. You know, I just gave it to all of you guys, but yeah, so now take whatever you have left and pay for the cover charge for these four guys and, uh, and just show everybody that you're still a good Jew. Okay. And so Paul, he, what does he do? 
he just does something so incredibly gracious and he does it. Isn't that awesome? And so let's go ahead and, and, and read what happened. Uh, it says, uh, so Paul took the men, verse 26, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. And so did, comp- did Paul compromise grace here? I think the answer would be no. I think he was doing what he says he does in first Corinthians chapter nine, where he says, for though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all so that I might win the more. And that's what Paul is doing right now. He is walking with different lenses over his eyes. He is walking with different call on his heart and he's realizing everything I do, I want it to be something that is the aroma of Christ and points people to salvation. I'll do whatever I need to do, essentially, to lead people to Jesus. And he gives examples of this. So in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 9, 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law. And then he kind of gives a little like, like parentheses here where he says, I'm not being without the law towards God, but I'm under the law towards Christ. And I do that so that I might win those who are lawless or without the law to the weak. I become weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men that I might be all me by all means save some of them. Right now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partakers of it with you. And so you just see, man, Paul's paramount care is that people would know Jesus. So whatever I need to do to set them at ease, I'm going to do it. Now we may, so far today, you might be like, gosh, this is why I don't go to church. You know, I don't go to church because I just know there's going to be some weird verse that we're reading that's just so foreign, has nothing to do with me. And we're just going to read about some guy that, you know, everyone's kind of bitter at him because he's not telling people to get circumcised anymore. Like that is so disconnected from my life. And then they're like shaving their heads and maybe burning the hair or something. And then, you know, yeesh, like, gosh, hope a buffet is still open after this because I'm going to need the ice cream bar after this, you know. And uh, yet there is application to us because God would have us have that same heart as Paul where we will be all things to all men that we might by all means save some of them. And so think about it in your life and in the Prineville culture, what are things that, that you just normally would never do but for the sake of the gospel or so that that person or those people would know Jesus, I'm going to do it for them. What would it be? And we were kind of coming out of a season where it's like wearing masks, you know, and like, oh, I, I would I never wear masks. I don't ever put them on. But you know what? Here's a person that I think that their conscience, they just keep wearing them and whatever their understanding is, they're wearing them. And I just really feel a heart for them to come know Jesus. So I'm going to go talk to him. And I'm going to put a mask on my face. Isn't that a crazy thought, you know, or to crank the dial up like a thousand percent, like to get to these people group that are so hard to the gospel. I'm going to get vac- vaccinated for that. Could you imagine, you know, or I'm, I'm going to take my hat off. You know, right now we minister in Polina and it's like, 
there are some older Polina folk that are like, you take your hat off in church is what you do. And to kind of prove it, we're going to make a thousand piece hat rack that goes on the wall so that every hat that ever comes down Polina City Road, it will find its way onto that hat rack, you know. And for some of us, we're like, man, that's not my conviction. Uh, you know, it's, I'm like, it's all about grace and I just don't even think that way anymore. And the Lord has had to kind of make some of us like, I'll be tipping this and taking it off and putting it on there so that I might minister to this people group or whatnot, you know? Um, and, and so you think that this is hard stuff like vaccinated. Could you believe it? Check out Timothy and Titus's testimony. Now, when Titus got saved, uh, the Jews were like, you got to get circumcised or you're not a real Christian. And Titus was like, just because you said that right now, I'm never getting circumcised, you know? And by the way, it's kind of my business. So get out of my business. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, somehow they had like scans or something. They could tell if people were circumcised as they walked around Israel, you know, could have been the way people limped. But other than that, uh, <laughs> I don't know much about these things, but, uh, so then, <laughs> Timothy, uh, there was concern that because his mom was a Jew and his dad was Greek, that wherever they went, it was constantly going to be a stumbling block for the Jews, and they would just, it would be a hard thing for them to hear the gospel. And so they took Timothy, and they circumcised him at about 16 years old. And so you think, you know, putting a mask on your face is like a hard thing for you to do to tell people about Jesus? Try hitting the guillotine up, Okay. Uh, and so what, it, what are those things that like, you know what, normally I don't, but right now I'm going to, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to lay down my rights that you could know Jesus and not go to hell forever. Uh, I love what, um, uh, FF Bruce says where he says a truly emancipated spirit, such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. All right, let me bring it down to Rory Rogers talk, okay? The freedom that we have was never given to us so that we would become slaves to it, okay? Uh, I remember one of our elders in the past, Chad Carpenter, preached a sermon on one of those liberties passages. And just the title of the sermon was so good. He titled it, an idol of my rights. And I think sometimes we are so about what we have the right to do and we have the liberty to do it and I am free and I'm red-blooded and I'm a patriot and all of these things and things that I love and I value too. But sometimes it becomes about the freedom and not about the people that the freedom's for. And so sometimes we need to put our shoulder into it so that we can help people know that freedom as well. And so what is that? I think the Holy Spirit is just so good because those things come up and you're like, you know what? I'm going to wear a tie to this event, you know, or I'm going to wear shorts to this event, or I'm going to, you know, pop a collar or put a collar on, you know, or I'm going to just not go in there or not drink that beverage or not smoke that, whatever it is, like I'm willing to not do or to do whatever it is at the moment Aside from sin, right? We can all agree like, he just said I could totally go off into sin. You know what I'm saying? Okay. But do or not do so that these people could come to know Jesus. All right. Uh, and so, uh, and so Paul just wonderfully showing that grace causes us toward, to move to action. Now in verse 27, now when the seven days were, uh, had almost ended, the Jews from Asia 
seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law and this place. And furthermore, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they previously previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So Paul is in Jerusalem, got a nice shorn head, you know, he's, he's loving on his Jewish Christian friends. The days are almost done and guys from Asia, Jews from Asia who have constantly been a thorn in Paul's flesh, always raising up trouble, caused the big stir there in uh, Ephesus. And they're just, wherever Paul would go, oftentimes there'd be a group of Jews following that would agitate things. They see Paul and they're going to do, they're going to, they're going to sin in three ways, basically. Uh, they're going to attack him with, uh, with these allegations of half truths that they had heard him say or, or a half understanding of the gospel and works. Uh, and then they're going to assume that this Gentile is with them and is in a place where the Gentile shouldn't be just because they'd seen Paul with that guy before around town, probably with him now. So we probably ought to just cause a big ruckus about this. Okay. So these Jews are going to stir up the multitude, uh, or agitate it. Think of your washing machine. I just, the other day, um, sat down by our, I don't know what I was doing down there, but for some reason I had to re-put some soap in or something in our washing machine. And I was like, we've had this thing for like 10 years. It's so pretty. <laughs> you know, it has a little waterfall coming out, going across the glass. And then there's all the clothes, ka-chung, 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 right? And, uh, and I'm like, oh, there's my special clothing and there's Lindsay's clothing. Or whatever. What is it doing to the clothes? It's agitating it, right? It's stirring it up, all right? And that's exactly what these guys started doing. They just start mixing it up, causing a problem. This problem is going to turn into a full-on riot. And it's all because of, you know, half understandings, not fully understanding, that tension between the gospel and uh, of grace and the necessity of works that accompany that grace. They don't understand it, so they're getting all mad about it, okay? And then, uh, the culture of the day was also in the, in the laws of the temple area were that the outer court of the Gentile, before you go into the inner court and then into the inner sanctuary of the temple, uh, there was this four and a half foot wall that would keep any non-Jews from entering into the outer court where the Jews would be. It's just a real welcoming environment, you know, solidarity all the way was the theme of the day, right? And there were these plaques that were on this four and a half foot wall. And if you go to Jerusalem today, there's a, you know, four and a half foot wall by the wailing wall that it's like, you don't go in here unless you got your yarmulke on, okay? Um, and on these walls, uh, in 1871 and 1935, they found two different plaques that were built into these walls that say anyone who's not Jewish who goes in in past this area, goes into the court of the Jews, you have yourself to blame for your ensuing death. Like, homie, don't play, essentially is what they're saying. Like, you don't go in it. So if Paul is in there, and he's with an Ephesian, a non-Jew, Trophimus, then that just, like, pours gasoline on the fire and just causes it to erupt. And so these Jews from Asia say, hey, all of you guys from Israel, get over here. We need help. 
You know, it's like yelling fire in a crowded outer temple area, right? Help! Exclamation point. These are the guys. And so this is just going to stir up a massive riot where they're about, they're about to tear Paul, uh, apart. Now, there were three things that they accused him of, if, if not four, that he was preaching people, uh, preaching against the Jewish people. You see it there in 28. Against the Jewish law, against the temple, this place that they're in. And then he's bringing Greeks or uh, non-Jews into this area. It's ironic that he's being accused of this while he's in the temple area for seven days, full on shaved his head off, which I think we all know is a great sign of commitment towards something, right? And is showing the Jewish Christians, I do have a value for the law, for the customs, and for the traditions. It's not that I've completely done away with these things. And it's during that time of him doing it that, uh, have you guys ever had someone get on your back for something and you're literally like showing that you're with them in that topic while they're getting on your back and you just say to them, I'm going to need to have you get all the way off my back right now. Okay. Um, me neither. So, but one of the sad things is that there is a lesson here in, in this for us is just when there are, when there are misunderstandings or we only know half of the truth of what's being said, or there are assumptions that I think this person was with this person at that time, and I'm pretty sure it was pretty shady and scandalous, that y'all just need to keep your mouth shut, okay? Because if you go spreading this kind of slanderous, gossipy stuff, it is going to cause a riot and, and be detrimental. Okay. Uh, read in my notes from my old notes, this story of Betty, uh, the church's gossip and self-appointed supervisor of the congregation's morals who kept sticking her nose into other people's business. Most church members were unappreciative of her activities, but feared her enough to maintain their silence. However, she made a mistake when she recently accused Ted, a man from the church, of being an alcoholic after she saw his pickup truck parked outside the town's only bar one afternoon. Ted was a man of few words, stared at her for a moment, and walked away. Later that evening, he parked his pickup truck in front of her house and left it there all night. (laughs) Now, Paul, what could he have done to kind of counteract the situation and get... What could he have done to get these Jews back for, you know, the, the slander that they were spreading? Um, what he's going to do to get them back is he's going to tell the story of how God has changed his life and, uh, and brought him out of, of misappropriated zeal. Okay. And so, um, uh, moving on in the text here. Oh, I, I would speak towards that, uh, that gossip one more time, how, whether it would be gossip, slander, or spreading half-truths and assumptions. Alistair Begg said, if we're going to say what someone has done, it should not be what we suppose they have done. If we are going to say what someone believes, it should not be what we suppose they believe. And if as God's people, we would uh, stay simply to the facts, many slanderous accusations would be prevented. Just stay with the facts, you know, and sometimes it's just as we're talking, subjects come up and we want to kind of interject like, and just, uh, just pour water on the fire, you know, 
Uh, and, and the Lord would just say, how about you just wait until you know everything before maybe there would be a warning that would be needed. Uh, E.J. Young was a 20th century Old Testament theologian, and he would write about a colleague of his, Gresham Meachin. Uh, Meachin was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and Meachin would break off and lead a revolt with a faculty group um, against modern liberal theology. They started Westminster Theological Seminary, which would be rooted in strong biblical lines. And so as a result, Meachin would go on to receive all kinds of slander and gossip against himself for this movement that began through him. Well, E.J. Young writes a great thing concerning this uh, drama that was going on. He says, they could spread stories about Meacham that are not true. Those stories are not easy to live down. People are willing to believe a falsehood rather than the truth. This is how Satan fights. Here is a good practical rule for us as Christians. When somebody says something derogatory toward you about someone else, just forget it. Do not believe it. It may be true. It may not be true. Whatever you do, do not spread it. Do not repeat it. Gossip is a terrible thing. At times, I think it's one of the worst of sins. You can destroy a person's character by gossip, and Satan delights in that. Gossip simply eats the bones of another person and destroys them. Man, all that we have studied the last month of spiritual warfare and the footholds that Satan loves to use, let's not let Satan uh, let gossip have that place of a big, a big stronghold here. Uh, I just was thinking about we went through a difficult season as a church and and people you know were leaving and um, people oftentimes it's happened a few times where people will just go and they'll just go start spreading rumors about the elders. And we got a call from one guy one day and he said, "Hey, someone came to my house and just." Wanted, wanted me to know, spreading this rumor that, um, you guys wouldn't let her do ministry because she's too beautiful. And I was like, yes, yes, I have had that conversation with many a lady in the church. You're just too beautiful. There's no place for you here, you know. Um, you know who you are. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm just going to go ahead and make this phone call and set up this meeting to just go ahead and spread all this slanderous rumors about that's just like, I mean, we just laugh because it's like, I mean, I don't even know what's going on. How is this even a story that's going on out there? But um, Paula Kirvin, if you would forgive me for saying that to you, and I'm teasing, she wasn't Paula, but she loves being called out in public. So call her public Paula. No, I'm teasing. The Hebrew word translated gossip in the Old Testament is defined as one who reveals secrets or one who goes about as a talebearer or scandal monger. And that's what was going on on the Temple Mount, on the Temple platform. These people were taking these half-truths and they were taking these assumptions and misunderstandings and making a big deal about it that almost cost Paul uh, his life, okay? Uh, so verse 30 and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seizing Paul, dragging him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Uh, now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So we kind of get some new information here that, by the way, the whole time they're beaten 
just putting the smack down on Paul and then also thinking about how they can kill this guy. So this isn't like a minor scuffle, you guys. This is, there's, there's like murder in their eyes, right? Um, and so the, the commander is able to get them to stop beating Paul. He came near and took Paul in verse 33 and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing, some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And so here we have uh, the colonel of the regiment come down. Uh, we know from chapter 23 that the guy's name was Claudius Lysias was this Roman commander. And as he saves Paul, gets him out of there, he binds Paul, which is a fulfillment of that Agabus prophecy from the last chapter. You remember, he took the belt and he bound him. Some, uh, some would say that this would be the last time Paul would be free in the book of Acts. Uh, the rest of the chapter, we see the, bind, the binds come off, but he's not out of custody at the time. Um, and we see that uh, he, he also is going to do some assuming and have some misunderstandings on who Paul is as the Roman commander. He's going to ask all the angry Jews who he is and ask all of the angry Jews what he's done. Isn't that sometimes how it is? There's a conflict in our life and we go to the the loud, rambunctious people like, you guys seem like you're level-headed and clear-eyed. Why don't you tell me who this guy is and what he's done? And some were saying one thing, some were saying another, just like all riots, just like in, in Ephesus in Acts chapter uh, 19, like this whole 50,000 person riot, like nobody even knew why they were there or what they were yelling about, you know? And so the centurion's like, well, I guess I can't, I guess I don't know who Paul is. And so they end up uh, putting him under the security of the escorts there. Uh, verse... Um, Verse 35, when, uh, well, verse 34 says, and some among the multitude cried out one thing, some another. He couldn't ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded him to be taken to the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. And again, remember the parallels between what Paul would do in Jerusalem and what Jesus did before him, where they would yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, the next verses of our section 37, Paul was about to be led to the barracks, said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So more assuming going on uh, of who Paul might be and how he might be treated. And Paul says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. I'm a citizen of no mean city, no problematic city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he'd given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. And so, uh, and so there's misunderstanding of who Paul is. They think he's this Egyptian uh, rabble rouser who tried to take over the Romans, uh, take over Jerusalem from the Romans. They led a revolt on the Mount of Olives. A couple of 400 people were, were killed in that revolt and the Egyptian assassin got away. And so they were thinking that this Egyptian assassin had got back in. He was called a Sakari and it's after the Latin word speaking of the assassin's dagger and that he might've done something in the temple Mount, some assassin's plot. And that's what the Roman soldiers think. And that's who he thinks that Paul is. And, uh, and so Paul says, nope, I'm a Jew. Like I kind of have a right to be here. And, uh, but I'm also noticing that you're taking me up some steps 
And steps are a perfect place to share a message with a multitude of people. So if it'd be okay with you, can I just pivot a little bit here and, and speak to all the people around me? And so the, the guard lets him do that. Uh, and he speaks in the, the Hebrew, or it could be even said the Aramaic language. It was the, the common language that all of his brothers would listen to. Now, we are going to power our power 15 minutes through this next chapter as we did in first service. I'll make it painless for you guys, okay? We're going to go through and hear what he had to say during his speech here. And one reason we're going kind of fast is this will be like the third time through the book of Acts that we've gone through Paul's testimony. And so he turns, he opens his mouth, and he says in verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. We see Paul is very diplomatic, just coming in a kind way as he speaks to the people that are hating him right now, calling them brothers, calling, calling them fathers. And he is going to give a defense that isn't so much for himself. It's going to be what the New Testament calls an apologia, which is really a, a moment to testify about Jesus and what he's done in his life. It's a good lesson uh, for us in our defending that we always point uh, to uh, to Jesus and what he does for us. And so uh, when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept very silent, all the more silent. And so he said, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up at, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you are all today. And so he's going to lay a foundation here that's going to show credibility that he's just as Jewish as they are. He cares just as much about the law as them. He's even more zealous. He's more educated. And you can read Philippians chapter three on your own time where he just ticks off the things on a list that shows why he, if anyone got to boast in their Judaism, he could outboast anybody. And concerning zeal, he says, I was so zealous. You want to know zeal? I was so zealous. I was persecuting the church of God. Okay. And so I, I know where you're coming from, brothers and fathers. I'm telling you, I was right where you were at one time. So hear me out on how I got to where I'm at now. All right. Uh, he's just stating the facts, essentially saying that he was in the Ivy League being brought up in uh, the Princeton or the Yale of Gamaliel's University. In verse four, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women. So there's his zeal persecuting the church, even to the point of death. In verse six, now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And so we see that the, the pivotal hinge moment in Paul's life was he was zealous going to Damascus to bring Christians back in chains and, and possibly kill them, put them in prison. And something happened in, in the noon time where the light brighter than the sun shone and, and a voice spoke to him. And he said, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. In case you're confused on which Jesus it is and you're persecuting me which tells us if you're persecuting Jesus's people, it's just as bad as persecuting him. We are the apple of his eye and we are his bride, the New Testament tells us. And so, uh, and so verse nine tells us, and those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke with me. 
little controversy there as uh, chapter 9 tells us that they didn't hear a voice. Chapter uh, 21 tells us they did hear. 22 tells us they did hear a voice. It's different Greek words, but both would confirm that they heard a noise, but not the message that was being preached. So if you're a critic here today, or you know a critic that's just looking for every little reason to throw the Bible out in the trash heap, um, there's always a wonderful answer when you look at um, just the inerrancy of the scripture. Anyways, moving on, verse 10. So I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Uh, I love what I. Howard Marshall said. The question expresses the stupefaction of Paul as he realizes the significance of what he's been doing and recognizes that he must now change his way of life. I had to underline that. Stupefaction. Anybody here remember the day that you were stupefied? Uh, before what Jesus has done for you, maybe today will be that day. I know what you're thinking. Rory, I think you're stupefied. Hey, be nice. Okay. Um, but he realized, here's what I've been doing, and here's what I need to begin doing. I need to repent and follow the Lord. Verse 11 says, And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus, then a certain Ananias... And then here's Ananias' credibility that these Jews in Jerusalem should appreciate. A devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. He came to me, verse 13, and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one. And hear the voice of his mouth. And so three things that the election of God for us brings to us. It's the same of Paul as God in all of his sovereign might. He calls us by name to be saved and to experience three things. Uh, it was so wonderful this week at middle school group. Russell was teaching this passage to the middle schoolers. We happened to be in the same passage. And just he drew these these uh, application from this verse as well for the middle schoolers that um, God has chosen Paul, that Paul would know his will. And he's chosen you, that you would know the will of God. He's chosen Paul, that Paul would see the just one. And that you too could see the just one. Remember in the gospels when they came to Jesus and they, they said, what do you want? And they said, sirs, that we may see Jesus. And God has called you that you could see Jesus, that you would know Jesus. And the third thing there, that you would hear the voice of his mouth, that you would know and discern the voice of God and hear him speaking to your life. Going on, verse 15, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, to just kind of a, a final little sermon for us here right now as we're wrapping up through this chapter. The question is asked as they read this phrase, wash away your sins, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And the question is asked, is baptism that act of water baptism is that where we find our sins washed away or could it be in the part b of that phrase when we call on the name of the lord we know from the new testament context that it's not by any work of righteousness that we do that saves us we are saved by his grace through the conduit of faith we're saved by his good works we're saved by his righteous actions 
And, and as we rest in that, we find all of our sins washed away. As we rest in him, as we call on the name of the Lord, there's a similar phrase in Mark's commission where he says, anyone who uh, believes and is baptized will be saved. So you might take that and say, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But then the, the, the clincher is anyone who does not believe will be condemned. And something we're just learning in homeschool literature, actually that was last year, I learned about topics and clinchers. That at the beginning of your sermon or your paragraph, you have this key phrase or key word. And at the end of your sermon or your essay or whatever, you want to repeat that key phrase or word. And so what's the clincher? What's the key phrase or word? Believe. Okay. It's not baptism. That's not the key. The key is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, what we've learned from the beginning of this really long sermon for you guys was that our belief in him will lead us to obedience and will lead us to baptism. The ESV study Bible says, be baptized and wash away your sins. Does not imply that the physical act of baptism itself cleanses people spiritually from sin. For Ananias gives Paul two distinct commands. Thus, baptism should be viewed as an outward symbol of the cleansing from sin that occurs when someone trusts in Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you today, if you've believed in the Lord Jesus, if you've called upon his name, and if you've found forgiveness of sins, have you been baptized? Have you made that public declaration, that visual drama of what's happened in your heart when you hit the waters of baptism and you show just as Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead to new life, so too this Rory Rogers, I'm uniting myself with Jesus and through faith, I'm the old Rory is dying, but he doesn't stay dead. There's a new Rory that's risen. It's a new creation. And now I have resurrection life and resurrection power. And I'm living for whole other purposes. Have you ever done that since you've believed in Jesus? I want to encourage you. We're going to be looking at one of our first baptisms of the season will be Easter, Easter Sunday. So be, come talk to the church leadership about baptism or talk to your folks or talk to your wife or your spouse or whoever it is that you're with and talk about, I think it's time that I get baptized and tell people I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Moving right along speedily and we can have the worship team come on up now. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. So Paul's going to talk about another trip to Jerusalem he made right after he became a Christian. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning, concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And so uh, there's more credibility to Paul and what he's sharing to this Jewish audience. He, he says, I've come back to pray on this holy ground. So why would I preach against the temple and against this holy ground? I've heard from Jesus on this holy ground. I'm for the holy ground, um, not against it. In verse 21, then this is Jesus speaking to him in that trance. Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him and tell this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. 
And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, and I'll just pause there for a second. Uh, there's kind of a, a popular word that's used these days about being triggered, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways. We can be triggered and just turn into just major rage monsters, right? And that was, I mean, they were listening. They were captive audiences to Paul as he stood on that stairway. And as, you know, they're like, wow, this is, can't argue with a changed life. Clearly he has had a changed life. And then he says, and so that's when God called me to go preach this gospel to the not Jews. And it was like, ping, you know, it was like that popped the pin on the grenade and released it. And then they just like ripping off their clothes. I mean, you've got some, you got a temper problem when you're ripping off your clothes in public and you start throwing dust up in the air, you know, like just hear me out. Anger management might not be out of the cards for you, okay? And uh, and so here we, they, we see they do those three things. Like, you know, a sermon does hit home, you know, when everyone's like, what? Got to give them props. They were listening, okay? And uh, and throw, they throw dust into the air. And uh, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Like, I don't know what you just did or what you just said, guy, but we're going to bring you in here and we're going to going to give you a good old licking, you know, and uh, you'll start telling us the truth then uh, because we don't understand what is going on or why they are so freaking out out there. And uh, and so they're going to get the Roman flagellum out and they're going to use it on Paul the same way they used it on Jesus. This cat of nine tails with the the sheep's bone and the metal shards and the glass that as they would whip an individual with that, it would catch into the skin and rip away the skin. And oftentimes people would be killed in the process, um, even especially when the Romans would do such a thing. And so so as they're uh, binding Paul with the the cords, let's see what verse am I in, verse 25, as they bound him with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, whoa, he told the commander saying, take care what you do. This guy's a Roman. Okay. This was what the Lex Valeria law or the Lex Porcia law that didn't allow Roman citizens to be uh, whipped without a fair trial. Uh, And so verse 27, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. And the commander answered, hey, with a large amount of money, with a large sum of money, I obtained this citizenship. And so legally, you weren't allowed to buy your citizenship into Rome, but you could bribe some corrupt officials. And and the centurion says, that was a lot of money that I bribed an official to get mine. And Paul says, I didn't bribe anybody. I was born a Roman and uh, I was born a citizen. And then immediately those who were about to examine him with the whip withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he'd bound him. uh, So the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And so the story will continue next time with him standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin so that this Roman can figure out what is the deal that they have against this Paul. And as we put our things aside, will you guys stand with me? There's a good little lesson in this conclusion and in all of this that God uses the the officials and the authorities of our land and even the laws of the land 
to protect his people and to advance the cause. We love to see it when that happens. And it certainly came for Paul as he used his trump card there and said, hey, I'm a Roman. Like, you can't whip me. And we see in Acts 16, he, you know, he's like, use that citizenship to his advantage for the gospel. Why don't we go ahead and pray and we'll close down in worship here. Lord, in this uh, big chapter of church history, um, and it's a lot, Lord. We are just chewing on the chewing on the steak today. Um, and while there were so many just historical things that kind of go in one ear and out the other or over our head, uh, there is a lot of wonderful application uh, here as well. Uh, Lord, just that we would have made that decision like Paul to call upon the name of the Lord and to have our sins forgiven. I just speak to you here today. If you came in those doors today and you're weighed down by the bondage and the baggage of sin and sinful decisions and sinful living, maybe even came through the doors today into this church and you would say, "I, I wasn't a Christian. It's just the beauty of Jesus is that he says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to become a Christian. You don't have to stand up, sit down, do ten Hail Marys. You don't even have to be baptized today. But trust in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Hope in Him. Realize that there is not a single awesome work that you could do that would appease him or would purchase your way into his presence or to paradise in the future by the works of your flesh you'll never be able to undo the wrongs that you've done but when you believe in Jesus All that Jesus has done in his obedience and perfection is put on you. So the Father sees you as absolutely perfect and obedient. That's grace. And today you can rest in grace. You can receive forgiveness, salvation, the hope of heaven. And what I think is even more exciting that strength for today and the mission of God for your life today. God wants to use you. And He will work through you as you believe on Him. He will work in you all kinds of beautiful and wonderful things for His glory. But you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So right now I just implore you and beg you lay aside your pride Lay aside your rights. Lay aside your dreams for yourself. Lay aside your righteousness. It's never going to be enough. And take up Jesus' righteousness. Take up his salvation. Take up his hope. You'll be born again. You'll be a new creation. And out of that will flow all kinds of wonderful obediences, including baptism. The Bible says that you can rejoice in that and that when one person turns to Jesus, that the whole host of heaven rejoice in that. There's a party going on upstairs. 
Also, there's really good correction for us within the church where we just, we believe what we want to believe unless we're told differently. We believe the lie if it fits within our prejudices. and We spread the lie, we spread the slander, we whisper the talebearer. They're tasty trifles. Slander mongers can represent us, even at Calvary Chapel. We just want to repent of that today, Lord. Just let us be those that just are quick to shut our mouth or just quick to just even tell a friend that would be speaking to us, you know what, hey, let's, I don't want to be, I don't want to be guilty of gossiping or slandering this sister or this brother. Lord, we'd be quick to just cease the slander, the misunderstandings and spreading misunderstandings and half-truths and assumptions. Let, let the bride be purified today in that way, Lord. Why don't we close just rejoicing in how good God is to us and that he saves us. And let's worship him in this final song today.